play at Novabet. Hello and a warm welcome to another edition of the Irish Angle. Uh, brought to you by Navibet. As usual, I've Emma Nagel and Johnny Ward here, and we're going to chat about all things racing in advance of Christmas. Now, Johnny, Emma, welcome to the show. Thanks, Vinny. Happy Christmas. I'm disappointed you didn't get the memo about the Christmas jumper, <laughs> but anyway, not to worry. Um, first of all, look, we've loads of things to talk about here. Let's get stuck in. Is he show? The one, yeah, the first big one is JP. A million to each one of the 32 counties, the GAA. That's some contribution, isn't it, Emma? Yes, it's incredible. Like to think of um, like what that money will do for, for 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 especially in the smaller counties, I suppose, where there's less clubs. It's kind of like a, a massive Christmas gift for all the treasurers of any small GA clubs around the country. They probably won't have to fundraise for years with it. Um, yeah, it was uh, just really massive gesture, I suppose. Um, kind of surprised there's a lot of negativity online about about JP afterwards. Um. But I'm not sure how you, how you can take any negativity from a story like that, to be honest. Yeah. Well, I suppose, like people seeing it, is he a saint or is he a sinner? Johnny, what do you think? It's all saint in this in this occasion, I think. Well, okay. I, I think anyone involved in philanthropy, um, and I, I use this in the nice possible way, you always have to be a little bit wary of somebody who's massively into philanthropy. And with JP, the reason, um, and this has been written about in the last few days, is that like JP has done unbelievable good, but he never really gives interviews. So he's a complete mystery. And he obviously is tax uh, resident in another country. Now, I don't actually know how JP even makes his money. So for all I know is he, the, the business he's doing and making money might be um, consistent with where he actually lives. And there, there's nothing compelling him to give all this money to charitable causes, some exceptional charitable causes, far more... Um, rewarding and far more i suppose deserving of it than the gaelic uh, athletic association um so i i think i just think it adds to the mystery of the man because he he never really gives interviews and he wouldn't be the only big owner in racing who doesn't want to talk about like essentially seemingly doesn't really want to talk about how he's made his money um jp is a complex one for me because his investment in racing is incredibly important for small yards whereas most owners and we talk about the concentration of a few different trainers a small number of trainers jp has been amazing in spreading his business around so many different yards often really sort of underperforming yards and i think he does that out of a kind of a sort of a philanthropy and also to try to and um, give something back from the wealth that he's made from racing in terms of like the way his horses kind of operate in terms of being bet on and how they're sort of campaigned um we could talk about that another day i, I would say like he invests an awful lot of money in racing and an awful lot of money in in horses and in training and in investing horses like i was absolutely staggered lately like i was going through a card i think it was one of the race meetings i was doing and he had sent byerly babe to galileo so like this 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 offers up so many questions like what's jp's relationship with coolmore that you'd send byerly babe to galileo like this is an, a, a kind of a decent chaser but you're sending to one of the, the greatest stallions of all time who's supposed to cost 300 500 grand whatever it is a pop um and and, and this is going to be a handicapper out of galileo so what's his relationship with coolmore i suppose how did he make all his money what does he do day to day um because for me the the, the articles that you know joe Brody's article in the sun independent would have been quite striking it certainly adds more mystery to the whole thing but in terms of jp's um kind of reputation i think he's he definitely doesn't like bad publicity no one does i suppose but i know he's 
he I know from hearsay he, he's wary about publicity. So I would like to know what his reaction to the I guess the mixed response in the media to what is a very good gesture was because um until JP gives an interview about his life and ex- explains how he made all his money because it's a complete mystery really i think there will be questions and that that quote that was attributed to him that he apparently said to tony mccoy imagine all the fish that'd be alive if they kept their mouth shut but one thing jp fish actually have to eat like the rest of us they have to open they have to open their mouths at some point yeah i don't know um look there's there's so many things in it i suppose um the, the the one that gets to me is i, I agree with you look he, he is a mystery man to to a large degree um supposed to be living in switzerland isn't it uh domiciled in switzerland i i note that switzerland actually has four gaa clubs they'd be a bit little bit aggrieved that they didn't get the few quid as well i'd imagine so i'm sure they don't need it in switzerland probably um, do you remember him as a bookmaker vinnie what oh i do i remember him well as a bookmaker yeah and his brother stood up for him then for a number of years after that as well uh in the pitch in his name um i look he was he's been around forever in my lifetime and i actually worked for him at one point um in a company uh called phoneovation um out in dun leary we used to do used to be able to ring up for telephone commentaries and results on races and tips and a few other things and uh, i remember working from them i remember at the time this is going back now say i was only a kid at the time but uh my father had worked for a company called xtel he managed xtel in ireland which was the company the predecessor to sis which provides all the the content into betting offices so they used to provide the, the old blower system where you'd just have a little box on the wall in a, in a betting office and you'd hear the commentary coming in from the different races or the result of it and so on so i remember at the time big problem for my father all the time was trying to get telephone lines you'd get a new betting office open they couldn't get a telephone line sometimes up to five years it took you to get a telephone line and the same at race courses you'd be there at the race course you'd need a telephone line to relay all the information back so telephone lines were a big problem back in the day and I remember in, as a kid in the office, JP arrived in, he had the first mobile phone I'd ever seen. Um, and it was a, a car phone. And then he tells me he'd, he'd three of them in the car and he had another five lines or something in the house at home in Martinstown. And I was saying to myself, oh my God, my father would kill for five lines. <laughs> like it'd take you, could take you 10 years to get five lines. So there you are, he'd, he'd a way of doing things even even back then. But um, like I say, it was only a short period I, I worked for him, but um, he was always good to me. Never did that wrong to me. I have to say, back in the day, but uh, just just overall, Emma, like as I say, he's incredible for horse racing, isn't he? Like if you took JP, like you talk about his philanthropy here with this this money he's given to the GAA, but it, it's purely philanthropy in a large extent to some of the small trainers around Ireland and the UK as well. There's people yeah. who wouldn't have a horse if it wasn't for JP, isn't? It? Yeah, definitely. Like and like in fairness, like. I suppose the difference between JP and other big owners is like he sends horses to nearly every trainer in the country. Like I'd say, I'd love to see a list of all of the horses JP actually owns and see what the spread is. But like, I mean, some of the horses that he has in training, like are I, I, I'd imagine are purely in training just to keep support these smaller trainers because a lot of them really like are are very low level or got at the game and they're just running away and but I'd say it's just like JP wanting to support and he does like it's it's UK and Ireland um maybe he had to be a lot of trainers in trouble if JP ever decided racing wasn't for him anymore because he is probably a big part of the backbone of the industry like the money that he pumps into racing um is staggering I'd say um but yeah he's he's just he's just huge for for racing in Ireland and I'd say what he does will probably never be fully appreciated 
you know, on the, on the other hand, Vinny, and this is the funny thing, if you ask, say, if you ask JP 50, if you ask 50 racing trainers to come on and do an interview about, like, um, JP, like, a lot of them would be reticent because they respect that he's so media reticent himself that there's almost kind of a code there. And if you look at, say, you you, off, you often bring up that he bought John Bond, and JP for for a long time didn't really buy point pointers, but he's, he sort of started moving on and he's probably evolving as an owner. But if you see the amount of race mares that he sent to walk in the park, now walk in the park stands for about 25 grand. I don't know what deal JP has, but even taking away that the investment from the, in, the conception of that horse, so that horse seeing the racetrack, then running the amount of money he's spending on them alone. So you can imagine, and I'm always looking at the, we'll say the, the performances of winning hurdlers of JPs in sort of beginners chases, for example, and kind of if you did the stats on that, they'd be illuminating. But if you have this conception that JP probably gambles on his own horses and the complexity of that in a very, very difficult game where it's very, very difficult to get on, you can kind of see why um, so many of his horses are well backed on certain days because the money he invests in training and owning and breeding horses must be utterly colossal like like he must be hemorrhaging money in terms of training fees and that aspect of the game so i completely respect that we all want to try and make a few quid when our horse is fancied but when you have about six million horses it's not straightforward like yeah i wonder how his paddy power account and that 365 <laughs> accounts are getting on hard to see how he gets his bets on isn't it or where he gets them on or how he does it i don't know but look that's a, that's all for another day as you say look we'll move on a few other we've loads of other things to talk about the other one is the BHA. There was uh, stuff in the Racing Post there last week talking about the fact that they're proposing to put a limit on the number of horses a trainer can run in a handicap in the UK. Now, they're talking about four being the max. Um, this will have an effect on certain races, obviously. There's a, there's a few of them that, that we know of. A couple of them at Cheltenham, a couple of the handicaps where Gordon Elliott targets some of them. And then we have, we have other ones like the Grand National where Willie Mullins, Gordon Elliott, they tend to have all the best horses. They'll stay in chasers anyway. So they tend to run a lot of horses in those races. Um, what do you make of this, Emma? Four, is, that, is, is this a good idea, a bad idea? I thought I thought it was I was I thought it was crazy to be honest. Um, just because it just seems so targeted at Gordon Elliott in particular, and I suppose Willie Mullins to a lesser degree. Um, like there was some stats put up, and I think in the last few years, I think like Gordon and Willie and maybe one or two trainers in the flat are the only ones who would actually be affected by this rule. Um, I don't see how you can really limit a trainer from running horses. I can see if if it was a case of limiting owners runners to four or five horses like I mean four or five horses in a Grand National is is plenty for any owner I would say but like if Gordon Elliott's training for 10 different owners like how does he tell them who can run and who can't run it's it just seems a bit um it just seems very targeted on on these two Irish trainers which I did won't sit well um like some of the comments from Gordon I, I think he was he was quite measured um as you Leo you probably less measured if you're saying he's going to transfer your horses to Colin Bow uh, a week before the Grand National or something but um I think there's probably a way of doing like I can see kind of what they're trying to do is um you know level it out a small bit um but they're like they're going to do two things they're going to really alienate the likes of Gordon Elliott and the Gigginstown and they're going to dilute the quality of some of these big chases I look I know that there's a lot of horses running for maybe the bigger owners at Gigginstown who are really no hopers anyway so like if, if you were going to limit, I would definitely limit owners because they can definitely decide their five best horses, but Gordon can't tell 
uh, he's fifth owner that oh you can't one now because my other four owners are more important than you are. Um, it just yeah, it, it makes no sense. I think there's a way of doing something like that, but it, this just seems like totally not thought through at all. And I presume it's going to be brought to the English trainers to to get their opinions on it, who I'm sure will probably want it to come in so that they they can get on in the Grand National as well. But um, yeah, I think it's I think it's a terrible idea. Well, the Grand National looks like that's probably the main race we're focusing on here with it because it, it doesn't apply to the vast majority of other handicaps uh, throughout the, the year, both flat and national hunt. So if you, if you focus on that Grand National particularly, there seems to be, there's there's been a trend all the way back that whoever the leading trainer is at the moment, that they will tend to have all the best staying novice chasers in national hunt game. Like you, you go back into the nineteen late 1990s, it was Jenny Pittman. Then you had the early 2000s, you had the likes of Martin Pipe. I think 2001, he ran 10 horses in the Grand National. The following year, eight. The year after that, eight again. The year after that, seven. Then in the into the 2000s, you had the likes of um, Paul Nichols. He's regularly run multiple horses in. I think he's run six in it on two separate occasions. And then in recent years, you have Gordon Elliott and you have Willie Mullins. But it's cyclical, is it, Johnny? This this is something that's not a major problem for the UK. And on top of that, the other thing with this is that they've they've tried to make the Grand National a far safer race by making all sorts of amendments and changes to it. And the, the class of horse running in it is better, which which helps for that, I presume, rather than having, you know, really bad horses in it are more likely to pick up injuries, you would have thought. So having it that the very best trainers, training the very best horses, can't necessarily all run in the Grand National. It's, it's, maybe it's, it's going to be um, backfire on them somewhat if that's what they bring in. Yeah, like I remember, remember Michael O'Leary being on the late late one time, and he was asked like, "Is the customer nearly always right?" And he said, uh, "The customer is nearly always wrong." And I thought it was one of the best lines I'd heard. And it, for me in racing, the BHA is nearly always wrong. Um, it's dealing with problems that, um, it's it's like the the foundation of the house is completely banjoed, or the car, the engine is completely completely banjoed, and they want to just repaint it, repaint it, repaint it, repaint it, repaint it, and hope for different results. Problems um, in British racing are massive, like they are so, so big, really threatening the future of the sport. And the BHA, I, I think, lacks any sort of confidence in terms of what it's doing here. Um, what I, I kind of relate to what Emma is saying here. I, I'm not mad on trainers having loads of runners in, in, in say, in the Tritown. Like, it's not Gordon's fault at all, but... And, and I completely re respect Gordon having all those runners to try to. And if I were a trainer, I'd do the same thing. But we've gotten to a situation where there was probably a lot of negative publicity around the race. Um, and in in terms of the Irish dominance of Britain, I think this is another attempt at the BHA to, to kind of hurt the, the, the Irish dominance. The same way that it stopped low-grade uh, horses coming over post-COVID, um, which was complete nonsense, really, because it was basically, in my view, was scared of all the low-grade races that Irish trainers were in, and like Gordon in Perth and so on and so forth um, and again it's just an example of the BHA um, I suppose really uh, exhibiting the insecurity that pervades British racing at the moment and it is cyclical I think it will change like you know Gordon Willie you and you and I we're not going to be around forever whatever it will change but um, I, I thought I suppose Henry de Bromhead was quite good the way he spoke about it. Eddie O'Leary was probably a little bit um a little bit too uh too honest on it because um Jigginson would definitely be affected by this. But again, I, yeah, I don't think it's a I don't think it's a workable solution at all, to be honest. And just on that, do you think the IHRB are gonna follow suit? Because it's it's far more of an issue in Ireland than it than it ever was in England or is ever likely to be in England, I suppose. So 
like well i think what, what i'm is that there like you, you'd have to you'd have to make it a, an owner issue and then do you bring that into the flat game as well so where the owner can only have in any particular race the owner can never have um, a certain amount of horses and also you'd have to phase that in because you can't be buying horses in 2023 and then be told in 2024 well sorry you can't run a load of horses that you just paid 400 grand for as a store like so they'd have to phase it in but things happen very very slowly in ireland compared to britain which is probably not ideal either yeah, what do you think, Emma? Just looking at it, like we take some of those handicaps in Galway, for argument's sake, just comes to the top of my head straight away. Aidan McGuinness, sure, he left half the field in some of them. He's he's basically, he's built a yard around having horses in those mile handicaps. That's what his whole stable is. So then you get to a stage where you're telling him he can only run four. That, that's a bit of a mess, isn't it? Yeah, I think like it would make an awful lot more sense if it was the IHRB came out considering this because like it's not really an issue in Britain at all, apart from like the Grand National, like you said, maybe one or two other big handicaps throughout the year. So, like, if the IHRB were seriously considering it, you could kind of understand it, but I still think it would be the wrong way to go about it. Um, like, I have absolutely no problem with a, a trainer having 20 runners in a race if they're all different donors, or, you know, there's most of them are spread out between different donors because, you know, the horses, the owners send them these horses, they have to find them the opportunities to run. And if they all seem to happen to suit their same race, so be it. Um, I think maybe, like, a way, one possible way is maybe, like, if you really wanted to, like, even... Let's say if they if they decided to limit the owners to five runners in a race, let's say like the Troy Town. Um, but like maybe that should only come into effect then if a race fills, because like if if Gordon didn't have the fifteen runners in the Troy Town, there would have been what seven or eight runners. I mean, leave him run them all if there's no one else wants to run. But maybe if if the race is full, only leave Gigan's Town run five. That's probably one way you could do it. But um, yeah, I mean, like this, there, I think I think it probably there is probably something the IHRB could do, um, which would work without really um affecting like I, I i don't think i just don't think it's fair the way they're doing it but i think like you should probably be trying to build up the smaller trainers rather than trying to tear down the, the big trainers as well like a series of races for smaller trainers would be a better idea than stopping gordon elliott from running all these horses that he has bought and trained for years it does so yeah just i i thought it was absolutely bizarre the whole the whole idea of it the monster yeah. national vinny was more pronounced like so jevray won that and like i think something that shouldn't be lost on on um the narrative as well is jevray won that race under ricky doyle ricky ricky like has obviously made his name in nationals but to get an opportunity on a horse that was six to one and um, for gordon in the monster national but if gordon hadn't run anything in that race that day henry had a runner joseph o'brien had a runner eric mcnamara had a runner and john ryan had a runner there would have been four runners if gordon decided i'm not going to support this race yeah that's that's look, that's the big issue isn't it there isn't enough horses in ireland to go around that aren't that, that outside of those top yards that's the that's the issue isn't it there isn't enough of them uh, certainly not in high grade um handicap chases or handicap hurdles or whatever that literally all the top horses are all in those main two yards and maybe gavin cromwell and henry de bromhead as well you take them out of it and there's there's nobody else left to run they don't even enter horses in these races most of the time anyway we move on next thing i wanted to talk about was tony martin there was a a case last week last thursday we found out the result of this case about a horse called first man which had won in dundalk back in january and um, i don't know whether you're both familiar with this i wrote a blog about it this morning it's a very unusual case in my opinion anyway that the horse is declared to run the Monday. The race is on a Wednesday. On the Tuesday, two vets attend that horse and issue him with basically the two different vets, both give him medication for arthritis, um, basically used for arthritis, stuff called cartrophen. And then one of the vets also gives him a painkiller as well. Um, you'd wonder, 
if you declare a horse on a Monday to run on a Wednesday and you find that he's not well on the Tuesday, which seems to be the case, there was obviously something wrong when two vets had to come to him. You'd think he wouldn't run on the Wednesday, but sure enough, he ran on the Wednesday anyway. And he gets well back, 9 to 4 into 13 to 8, and he hacks up. And then after the race, we find out that he's tested positive for a different substance altogether. It didn't con- wasn't contained in either of the stuff the vets gave him the previous day. Stuff called lidocaine um, was a prohibitive substance on race day, and he had 20 times what the screening limit is for that. What do you think, Johnny? This is a very odd case, is it? It's a very troubling case, really. Like I would implore anyone listening to read your blog, Vinny. I think you're... I think in terms of journalists, journalism and racism, there aren't enough journalists anymore um, and people are afraid to kind of say stuff. I think your blog is very, very good in terms of dealing with some of the issues and you're not afraid to confront, um, to simplify this matter as well because like the, the, I, I opened up the email from the IHRB the other day. I think this was, I think this came to 12 or 15 pages or something, the, the report on this. And I mean, I, I'd, I'd almost just say to to in in the context of what's happened with some of the ihrb cases um this is a very very troubling case because this kind of uh, inability to prove it's, it's sort of the same with the all the luke homer stuff luke came luke homer with the horses that were found um positive in his um under his care kind of he couldn't he went out of his way to kind of suggest how this could have happened but he couldn't prove himself how it happened and it's the same here with with tony martin in the sense that he sort of said it could have been contaminated um betting at the at the racetrack or whatever um and they, they found that that wasn't the case and I don't know. He's he's gotten a, a two-year suspended sentence of six months. So if he re reoffends in, I suppose that that two years after the six months, um, he he'll immediately be punished and banned for that. But, um, it, it's it, it it's. I mean, there are an awful lot of questions arising from this. Um, to be honest, and I I'm I'm actually almost afraid to talk about it because I. I, I don't know. I, I actually don't know what to say beyond what's written in your blog because it's it's not a it's not it's a very unsettling case. Yeah, well, look, look, there's several things here. It, it just it, as I say, I'm the first thing is, as you said, about the the report on this case that was issued by the IHRB. It goes to whatever, 12 or 15 pages. This is the same every time. It takes the likes of me hours to go through those because there's so much information in it. Some of it is waffle, and some of it is all sorts of different things about so-and-so said something that is somewhat irrelevant in in the large scheme of things you're trying to pick through it to find what are the real bones of this what really went on here and again as you say what what ends up happening but this seems to be the case for me anyway in the vast majority of these is we get no satisfactory conclusion they cannot find out how that horse ended up having 20 times the screening limit for lidocaine in its system after the race we we are no none the wiser now than anyone was when that horse was going down to the start in Dundalk on the 18th of January. So that, that for me, that this seems to be a constant with it, that we can never get to the bottom of what the hell is going on. The other thing is that it, it looks as if, now it's not absolutely certain, but it does appear as if that horse received that lidocaine. Somehow it got into his system at the race course. Now, Tony Martin tried to find out if he'd any more lidocaine at home in his yard, had other horses been treated for it the previous month or whatever, and couldn't find anything. 
also seemingly lidocaine is something that is used i don't know much about this this would be more your area johnny for cutting into cocaine they, they had it in or something I, I have no idea how that works but um seemingly <laughs> that's that's another another element of it right but um <laughs> i don't know so, where that so, came from but anyway no i know but he checked all checked all his staff to see if anyone anyone who and this is the other thing is like look we we know i know from the local pub never mind anywhere else that the public can tell you that he can see on big nights now over christmas and that he'll be able to tell you oh, there's, there was a load of them in last night and they were on the white powder or whatever it seems to be everywhere it's look it's 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 almost like alcohol at this stage in ireland that, that there's cocaine everywhere the government doesn't seem to be able to sort that one out either so i suppose we, we can't expect the ihrb to be on top of that but but if that's a case that you know someone was taking cocaine that could contaminate the sample for the for the horse and everything else perhaps that's what happened i don't know but they can't prove it one way or the other so how do you get to a point here where we know what's actually going on because it's extremely frustrating obviously very frustrating from the ihrb point of view but just as a racing fan to be able to be to be here to be able to go and have a bet in dundalk next week hoping that you can the, the only way i can have a bet is i open up the form and i study the form of all the horses and i come to a conclusion that i think that one will beat that one and whatever else and he's a good price so i'm going to have a bet on him but when you've all these things going on in the background it, it makes it a really difficult sport doesn't it just like you don't have that in other sports generally like you take the premier league soccer which the bookmakers love because it's um it's so predictable i suppose to some extent and they know that people will bet on there's only three options it's a it's a win, a draw, or a loss, or whatever. Whereas horse racing, they seem to be steering away from that a bit. You can see with their the bookmakers, their anti-post betting. We talked about that last week. They don't seem to want to be interested in that anymore for horse racing for the likes of Cheltenham. They don't really take it seriously anymore. It's just a PR um, tool is all it is for them. So the bookmakers themselves have realized that it's not, it's not a sport where you can actually take it seriously from a bookmaking point of view anymore because there's... If someone has a has a marked card here, um, you can you can take huge advantage of the bookmaker, so they're not that keen on it. Um, but just from a sporting point of view, the, the main thing horse racing does is betting. That's what it's all about, is, is the betting side of it. It's where all the revenue comes from. Everything to do with it is to do with betting. So you, you have to make that as clean as possible. And unfortunately, this shows again that it's not as clean as we would like it to be. Emma, what do you think just about this case or just in general? Like as I say, I, I find it very unusual here that a horse that was due to race on a day had to be given medication the day before for whatever was wrong with him. We're presuming it's some it's some something to do with his joints that he was he was as stiff as a poker. Perhaps I don't know that he had to get two different vets in to give him treatment the day before. That'd be a very unusual thing, I'd imagine. Again, you know, I wouldn't be it wouldn't be too common, I'd say. Um to be honest, I don't know a whole lot about the the drugs which the vet tests um administered to the horse. I presume they were safe to race on which is why he was being treated the day before the race. But yeah, I mean, like like you were saying, kind of more questions than answers, but it kind of seems to be the re reoccurring team in all IHRB investigations. Um, and like Rona McDonald's probably unlucky. He seems to be the only one they got to the bottom of. Like it's at 20 times, like you wouldn't, you'd say something and maybe if it was um, traces of this lidocaine, which like you said is... Um, used in cocaine or something like you were mentioning, like that you'd kind of imagine then it could have been environmental com contamination now like tony martin like in your blog you kind of highlight that he seems to have gone to great lengths to to see how this environmental contamination should could have came about but kind of like like every case that we probably talked about on this podcast gone before there's just kind of never it, it never really get, seems to get to the bottom of it and like you were saying like on a sport where 
betting is probably the main source of revenue. Um, it's not a great look for the public because it's hard to have confidence in kind of ruling body of a sport when nearly every uh, drugs case seems to go to kind of the not being solved um, pile. Yeah, yeah but I, just... I think as well, Vinny, the, the IHRB is probably um, very stretched at the moment. That's the feeling I get from it. And it was, you know, it was noted that missing identity case in Killarney um, that basically the, obviously the wrong horse ran. It was, this is a really messy case. So the wrong horse wins the race. It's not that right horse. So that for bookmakers, that's complete mess. And the, the, funny enough, the bookmakers probably, um, the, the, I suppose the bookmakers online didn't even know if so, completely to what you're saying here, racing is becoming so um, down the list in terms of bookmakers. They probably didn't even know that horse in Killarney, that Johnny Fien train was um, was the wrong horse, which is an honest mistake. But the IHRB is probably stretched in terms of resources. There are so many race meetings on now, and these cases just keep on coming up and coming up and coming up. But in Ronan McNally's case, and I'm not, I'm not saying um, Ronan's from the north, and what about her? He has kind of been a part of the north for a long time. But like, Jesus Christ, for what Ronan got compared to what others got, there was nothing. No suggestion, whatever, that Ronan was involved in um, any prohibited substance or whatever to his horses. Um, it was more of an integrity issue. And what Ronan got compared to other cases, it kind of does baffle me a bit, to be honest. Yeah, but just just coming back to this last thing about this is we we had Viking Horde down in um, Tremor 2018, and it was found that it looks almost certain that he was nobbled in the stable yard. And of course, at the time, there were no CCTV cameras in stable yards. So you couldn't prove who did it, but it looks like it was done in the stable yard that the horse was nobbled to lose. And then we have, we move on, but five and a half years or over five years later, and we have a case in Dundalk where it looks like drugs were given to a horse or a horse got contaminated with drugs so that meant that there were prohibitive substances in the stable in some way whether it did turn out that tony martin's original assumption that it may have come from contaminated bedding perhaps he was right i don't know but let's say he was right or he wasn't right or whatever happened but whatever way you look at it there's a strong chance that there was um a prohibitive substance in in the stable that that horse was in in dundalk how does it get in there like you, you talk about the under resourcing or whatever or being stretched the ihrb but According to themselves, they, they have an average of six um, security officers in attendance at each race meeting. They now have 500 CCTV cameras in stable yards around the country. Like, it's the same in my blog. You can't get a bottle of water through the airport security in Dublin Airport or anywhere else for that matter. Anywhere around the world, they can stop you bringing stuff through. How come people are still able to bring whatever it is into a race course stable yard? It, like, what, what do we need to do here? Strip search them or something on the way in? Or what do, What needs to be done here? How do you solve this problem, Emma? Like, you, you go to, you're, you're a, you have a stable lasses card, haven't you? So you, you, you go regularly to the races into the stable here. What is the problem? How could you get in Lidocaine or whatever else if you were going to God knows what race meetings? I mean, I suppose you could. Like, they don't really, you're not getting searched on the way into the stable. Yeah, you just scan your pass and you walk in. Whatever's in yeah. the bag could be in the bag, I suppose. But, um, I, like there's been like a few changes in like the to stable yards like a, a couple of years ago you could actually use a syringe to give a horse water you could just squirt it back their throat but they've stopped that you're not allowed to bring any syringes into the stable yard anymore which I suppose is a fair enough thing um but like like to be fair like what Johnny was saying is right like it is a, a tough job the IHRB because a lot of these cases are very hard to prove but like you were saying like with all the CCTV which has been kind of recently 
um, installed in, in all the stable yards, like you'd think that there would be some kind of trail of evidence for something like this. Like if, if the bedding was contaminated, how did it get contaminated? Like just look who's going in and out of the stable um, throughout the night in Dundalk. Surely there might be some some kind of a clue there, but yeah. It's... I, think I think with this, with the with the bedding being contaminated, what they're thinking is they were reusing bedding, that there was bedding would have been used, say, the, the week before at Dundalk and they were bagging it up and then giving it back to them the following day. There you go. There's fresh bedding when it wasn't actually fresh bedding. No, but seemingly that's not the case by all accounts. That, yeah, that uh, would be a worry in, that in general as well. I don't think trainers would be too happy with reused bedding inside in the stable. There could be any kind of say not, yeah, the week yeah. before. Yeah, absolutely. But you look, there you are. Look, we're not going to solve this now, but it is it just it's an ongoing thing, isn't it? It's just we never seem to get to the bottom of it, which is very disappointing. Um, look, moving on. Christmas. Christmas is coming. Probably some of the best outside of Cheltenham for me, anyway. National hunt wise, it's some of the best racing you'll see. What's peaking your fancy, Johnny? What are you really looking forward to? Leopardstown, Kempton, Chepstow? Yeah, I mean, I see Alaho has been back to go for the King George. Um, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing him. Um, I'm, I suppose I'm looking forward to seeing um, some of Nicky Henderson's horses come out as well, if that is the case. Um, and I, I'm actually really looking forward to the racing post on um, on, on uh, Christmas Eve where you get all the race cards. My favourite day of the year to, to buy the paper and see on irishracing.com all of the, the list. So you have all of sort of uh, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day to look at, at the cards and have that paper as well and just have, have your two days. I find Christmas quite boring, to be honest. So I love watching, uh, I love looking at form and seeing what's going to happen. It's a good opportunity as well for, um, you know, the, the third choice riders, I suppose, go up to Down Royal on, on the 26th and to get good rides. And it, it is a magic time of year. And hopefully, I think the weather looks like it's going to be pretty you know, it's been going to be pretty dry and relatively mild in Ireland. So it looks like we're going to have good national hunt winter ground. And, uh, yeah, hopefully some clashes. Like, I, it's interesting. A, a, a fella said to me lately, he said he finds the midweek cards more interesting than the weekend cards in, in ways now because there's so many odds-on shots running at the weekend um, and so many uncompetitive races. And I hope, like, with all these great runs that we have, that we have some competitive racing because I, I genuinely don't think run like four four and five to one on shots running in successive races across um you know the, the two jurisdictions is, is particularly interesting to be honest anymore. Um so I hope we've competitive race and we're really looking forward to it. Yeah, so there's going to be some crackers, I think. I don't think there's going to be well look it depends on the way it all falls, I suppose in the end. Like I was I was looking forward to that King George Alaho and Jerry Kalam, but Jerry Kalam now, uh, Gordon is talking about maybe not sending the horse, which is a little bit disappointing. But you've still got the likes of Shishkin, the real whacker, Brave Man's Game won it last year. Oh, there's some great stuff, isn't there? I was looking at that racing post novice chase on St. Stephen's Day in Leopardstown, looking at the entries for that Fasil Vega, American Mike, Gaelic Warrior, Blood Destiny. That's only a few of them. There's there's dozens more in those races at this stage. Emma, you, you must have loads of them picked out, have you already? Yeah, I, I can't wait for the, the two big, I suppose, Gold Cup kind of horses coming out, like the, the, the King George and the Savills are probably the two that are I'm most looking forward to. Uh, like like you were saying, the King George, Jerry Clone might go, but like there's Alaho coming back, um, Brave Man's Game, can he get back to form? And then the Savills, you're probably going to have um, Galloping Deschamps and Faster Slow facing off again and maybe Gentleman's Game and Jerry Clam thrown in there as well. So, yeah, th I think... There's, there's, there's so much um and it's such a kind of a busy period i 
I, I like Christmas or I like just kind of, I actually, before watching the racing at home, to be honest, than going racing around Christmas, I might go maybe one or two days, but um, there's nothing better there than Stephen's day and you're having like the turkey sandwiches and watching, watching all the racing. It's kind of nonstop all the way through the day. It's um, probably one of the best times of the year. It yeah, is. Okay. To, be, to be fair now, if, if you do go racing like on the 26th or that, and I, I found this, Finney, and you can relate to this, the buzz in Leftstown, people have just been like kind of oh. cabin fever, waiting to get out of the house, and you have your hot whiskies, and there is a great kind of vibrancy to that meeting. And I, I would reiterate there, what, just what Emma's saying, that the Savills in terms of Mouse and Martin Brassel clashing against Willie Mullins, that's going to be very interesting. But like if you if you do, if you can go racing over the, if you haven't been racing in a while, get out over the winter, it's get out of the Christmas, it's brilliant, brilliant atmosphere and Limerick are phasing out their meeting a bit this year as well to try to stretch the the crowds from the 26th onwards and so they've moved they've rejigged the fixtures a little bit in terms of the big race and all that but brilliant time to go racing yeah don't forget down royal as well there's a whole one or two punted and down royal on Stephen's day or boxing day for them i suppose officially um yeah but that, look it's going to be a fantastic um few days i really look forward to it. one thing i do want to mention before we go as well is just in case anyone is waiting on their irish racing yearbook to come in the post because i've had quite a few people on to me in the last week i'll just let you know we have nothing to do with that it has nothing to do with irishracing.com it's produced down at kilkenny so if Blame the postman, blame whoever, but it's not us. That's we're not we have nothing to do with that. So you can you can contact them. If you look it up online, I think it's irishracingyearbook.com. You'll find telephone numbers there because I pointed a few other people in that direction to me to, to get in touch with them. So uh, there you go. That's one thing. Well, look, I hope you both have a very happy Christmas. I hope everyone watching has a very happy Christmas and wins a few quid at some point along the way. Back's a winner at least. And uh, do gamble responsibly if you are having a bet. And we won't be back now until probably early January. But we'll be back and we'll have a chat about all the stuff that happened over Christmas and the start of the new year. So Merry Christmas. Have a great time. And we'll see you all again soon. Bye for now. <laughs>